1: Welcome to GabFest Reads for the month of February. I'm Emily Baslon, one of the hosts of Slate's Political GabFest. I am really excited to be here today with a wonderful novelist, Rebecca Mackay. Hi, Rebecca. Hi. So glad that you were joining us for this book, which I think is going to be a big splash, and I had such, an, such a good time reading. So your book, your new book, is called I Have Some Questions for You, and we are going to talk about that in just a minute. I want to briefly mention um, that you have written several previous novels, including The Great Believers, which is just a wonderful book, and everybody should go read that book alongside I Have Some Questions for You. It's really just such a treasured um read of mine on my bookshelf and you're also the artistic director of story studio chicago which is a very cool sounding writer training sort of project right
2: yeah it is very cool it's it's writers of all levels of experience and all ages and now we're online too thanks to the pandemic but it was the silver lining so yeah it's it's a it's a great job
1: So I have some questions for you. Rebecca's new novel has some real heat to it. She describes it as a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery, which I loved. The protagonist of the novel is Bodie Kane. She is a lonely girl, for much of the story, from southern Indiana. And some of the book revolves around her experience as a charity case at a made-up boarding school in New Hampshire called Granby. When Bodhi is a junior in high school, her roommate, Thalia Keith, is murdered. Um, and it's a really horrible crime that takes place on campus. And uh, the school trainer, who is a young, pretty young black guy, winds up being accused of this crime and convicted and is in prison. Most of the novel unfolds years later, maybe about 20 years later, when Bodie is an adult who has gone off into the world and become a successful podcaster. And her podcast is about Hollywood, and a lot of it is actually about women who've had kind of mysterious things go wrong for them in their um, lives in the past, real people, She comes back to Granby, to this boarding school, to teach a podcasting class. And her students in the class prod her, or maybe she prods them, into reinvestigating the murder of this girl, Thalia Keith. And that's really kind of the premise for the novel and where a lot of the action unfolds. Rebecca, you start the book with the line, you've heard of her. And that becomes a kind of recurring theme in the book. I think it's a theme you're playing with, this idea that there are girls and women whose lives, we don't know them personally, but they end up becoming, you talk about it at one point, as like a form of public property. They become kind of news obsessions. And I just wonder why you started with that line and and what you were thinking about.
2: Yeah, I mean, that line does a few things for me. One is exactly what you said, right? It, it raises that theme. This is a story that people think they know. This is a person, a victim that people think they know. Um, they latch onto it. You know, there, there are certain stories that, for whatever reason, out of all the stories out there, they just grab a lot of people's imagination. And I, you know, I'm fascinated by that concept. Sometimes it's because it's a really unusual case, but it's, it's often something else. It's often something about the victim or the setting. Um, So there's that. Um, There's also a little bit of the premise that this is real, even though of course it isn't. Um, But there's, I I, I can't believe I'm about to reference Ethan Frome, but um, (laughs) I was reminded recently because my, my ninth grade daughter was studying it, but it basically opens with this idea of you've, you know, if, if you know this town, which of course doesn't exist, You've probably seen this guy, which you haven't, and you've wondered what's up with him. Of course, everyone understands that they're reading fiction, but there's this um, invitation into the suspension of disbelief that we're going to pretend, not that we're reading some kind of cozy murder mystery where we we really know it's made up the whole time, but we're going to pretend for the rest of this book that this is a real case, that this is a case that the world is obsessed with and that we're seeing a different side of it.
1: Was it easy to make the choice to write about the death of a young girl, right? I mean, you're both playing with that idea and noticing our obsession, but you're also, of course, engaging in it because this is the subject matter of the book and there is a kind of layered notion to the... I don't know if I should use the word purpose of the novel, but there's a layered notion to the experience of reading the novel and it seems quite deliberate and I wondered about the choices you were making.
2: Right. I mean, there's... It it is hopefully subverting a lot of, um, expectations. It's examining a lot about why we are particularly interested in crimes against young women. Um, why are women particularly interested in these stories as well? Uh, but it's also, um, it is partaking of that quite knowingly. Um, you know, there, in this particular case, there are uh reasons that people are obsessed with what's going on that are maybe a little bit lurid but it is also genuinely an interesting case and with this book it's going to examine these this lurid interest but it's also going to actually dive into what really happened
1: yeah so bodhi and her students are very interested in what really happened and they're Um, inevitably going to unsettle some of the decisions that were made along the way in the real-time investigation of the case. The book is also written in part as a kind of letter- or maybe like long audio diary entry to Mr. Block. And Mr. Block was the music and theater teacher who Bodie really looked up to in the time she was in school and he was also close to Thalia. And I wondered why you made that choice, that kind of epistolary form with him as the imagined receiver of the letters.
2: And to be clear, it's you know, it's it's never stated that she's writing this or recording it. It's more that she's kind of thinking it at him. Um, and she talks a little bit about uh, in her childhood, always feeling like there was some audience, someone was watching her in some way. That's something I think a lot of us experience. I was definitely, definitely one of those kids. I always, fig- you know, had someone in mind who was watching me do whatever I was doing, and I can fall into that as an adult a little bit too. Um, and especially if you revisit a certain place uh, where there was someone who, you know, someone who was important to you. Uh, you interacted with them there. Maybe someone you've lost, maybe just someone from your past. And so when she sets foot back on campus, um, without quite at first knowing why, the person that she is thinking of, that she's narrating her actions to, I think to me, it's just really in her head, is this music teacher. Um, Because she was attached to him for sure, but also because there are things nagging at her subconsciously about... Um, the involvement he might have had in this young woman's disappearance.
1: It also seems like you're telling us something um, or showing us something about storytelling, Um, right? I mean, what you just described is that experience of feeling like you're narrating your own life and that there's someone in particular who's your audience, right? Um, There's a wonderful passage in the book, Bodhi realizes in the course of thinking about all of this, this nagging self-subconscious of hers, that there were a bunch of kids who would have known at the time that Mr. Block and Thalia had a kind of... Relationship that would have made them nervous and uncomfortable, and yet nobody spoke up. And then you tell this story about fireflies, which I think really intersects with this question of why don't people say the things that are on their mind, even if they're unwelcome? I just wondered, you know, what you were thinking about with that passage and what role it plays in the book.
2: No, the idea there with... um That whole theme of the things that people know but maybe don't share, that's huge. Uh, When I look back on high school, the things that we were aware of, the things that we either, you know, they were true or we thought they were true, oh, my God, you know, And, and we didn't feel like we were supposed to tell people. We felt like either the adults surely already know, or, you know, this is this is kind of what it means to be adult that these things happen around you, which is of course not true. And or we felt like, you know, well, why would I be the one to bring this up? This isn't my problem. this These aren't my friends. Um, so that was a, you know, something that uh, while I'm not writing about my own high school experience, I was thinking back on my own high school experience, and that was something that came into it. Um, and then, yeah, there's this passage where, in the New Hampshire woods, and there's a student there who um, has never seen fireflies before because he's from Denmark, and he is completely wigged out because he just has not even heard of fireflies before. Um, and his perception of what's going on there is is really skewed, and, and it was a, you know, it's a way for, for Bodhi, my narrator, to start thinking about um. The different ways, not only that we perceive things in the moment, but the different ways we might remember them later.
1: Right. I mean, it's almost like he's seeing alien creatures because they're there's just little tiny lights yeah. going off and he has no, they're not in his frame of reference at all.
2: Right. He describes them as tiny UFOs. He's trying to explain why he's late for the rehearsal for the musical. <laughs> he says little UFOs. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Right. And then you say about in from Bodhi's point of view, it never would have occurred to us to say something. Um, it's just like a different frame of reference entirely. And I also wondered if you were thinking about the idea that it was a different generation and a different moment of time. Definitely.
2: Oh, my God. So, yeah, like Bodhi, I graduated from high school in 1995 and I, you know, I have now I have a daughter who's a ninth grader. I have a high school student and. Um, Things are hard, of course, in different ways. But, oh, my God, the things that people said and did, um, both teachers and students, and I'm not specifically talking about my school, but um, I think everyone had this experience of looking back and going, oh, my God. I, you know, the things that people, the things that bothered me at the time, and I thought it was my problem for being bothered. I was absolutely right. And, you know... I, I could have said something or, you know, in one case for me, like I, I did say something and then about, you know, someone exposing himself, basically to people said something and then regretted it because everyone was way more um, confused and upset at the, at the fact that I would have a problem with it than at what this person was doing. Um, and I think that's changed profoundly. Uh, it, I think it depends on the school, of course. It depends on the geographic area, but things are just so different and including, and I want to, I want to say that I think, I just want to call out your incredible reporting on bullying. There's been so much amazing conversation around bullying the past 10, 15 years. I think, you know, these kids have been trained in how to avoid it, how to report it.
1: Um, And I do think
2: that's thanks to journalism from people like you. So giant shout out to you for that.
1: Thank you. I feel like that was more credit than I deserved, but I will happily take it. I mean, what struck me, it felt very, this memory and the world you're painting felt very 1990s to me. I'm a few years older than you. And one thing that often strikes me is that I think at the time, I thought the girls I was friends with, like, we thought we were living in pretty enlightened times. So.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was as, as liberated as things would ever get. Yeah, totally.
1: Right. And now it seems like kind of prehistoric. But sometimes right. when I tell, talk to my law students and I sort of say, like, things are better now in for some of these feminist issues, I feel like they get frustrated because things are not necessarily the way they want them to be.
2: Yeah. And what's funny too, I think looking back, one of the funny things is the complacency that we, you know, I, I think we really felt, um, some of us, even when we were unhappy, like, well, all those problems were in the past. Um, feminism came and, you know, did its job. And now we're here. I'm sure that people who were coming of age as people of color in the nineties felt differently, but the the sort of messaging out there that I absorbed as a, as a young white woman was, you know, civil rights, racism, all that stuff. We basically solved it. There's, there's something every once in a while, but that's something we study, you know, from the 1960s, which of course then also felt like ancient history, even though it was only 30 years past. Um, and, you know, not only were things absolutely not anywhere close to solved or stable at the time um we've you know we've made in some ways significant progress in some areas and i think we're fortunately more aware of our shortcomings which are still significant now than than most of us were then and i don't think that's just being an adult now i think that's that's in general
0: Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply.
3: On Debt, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things.
0: I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air, you don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving.
3: Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
1: One of the ways I think this book subverts expectations in the way you mentioned earlier is um, part of the way through the book, Bodhi's ex-husband has an experience with being canceled via Twitter, for a consensual relationship he had when he was younger but not super young with um, someone who was an adult in her early 20s. He is an artist. She was working at a gallery where his art was being um, presented and shown. And you do a really interesting job of sketching this kind of cancel culture moment that different people have very strong opinions about going in different directions. And it's a really interesting juxtaposition to a lot of the much more straightforward kind of feminist, um, righteous outrage in the book. Um, Tell me about how you came up with that episode and what you're doing there and what you want. Yeah, just how you thought about it.
2: My job is to create complication. My job is to ask questions, right? Or to, to take questions I already had and then mess them up even more. Um, I definitely never want to go into a book feeling like I have a point to prove, or I have some lesson for people. I have the answers for people. I'm never interested in that. Um, and so, you know, in this case, if the big questions on the table included abuse of power, um, in In, you know, sexual relationships or romantic relationships, when there's a big age differential, that's part of it. And also holding people accountable for their actions in the past. I wanted to include something that was um, not as easy, not as simple. Um, And at the same time, and that's, you know, one of the main reasons it even crept in there to begin with was I was seeing these things happen um, in, you know, in the literary world, in other you know, kind of public sectors. Um, after that initial wave of Me Too, uh, people being called out for things that, in some cases, you know, okay, that's not illegal, but it's it's gross. <laughs> and in other cases, things that some of us look at and go, "Well, I don't see what the problem is." Um, this, you know, is is an age differential really this huge issue in a relationship when we're talking about an adult woman who we'd like to think could make her own choices. (laughs) Um, So um, that was something that was on my mind. It was something that I was, you know, talking with friends about quite a lot in the time I was writing this book as different situations came up. Uh, And so it, it crept in because it was just something I was stewing over uh, there are a lot of things that creep in because they're on your mind, but you keep the things that creep in and then speak to other elements of the book. Um, I keep the things that that work in this echo chamber. And so that's that's basically what happened. That's why I kept it, was this is actually doing things here. It's also, you know, it's, it's throwing my main character, it's throwing Bodhi off balance to simultaneously be... Looking back and, and um, wanting to call people out for their actions in the past, but then to see a situation where she feels like um, she'd rather defend the person being accused.
1: I think it succeeds both as plot and theme. I mean, you're creating a hard case, a a case that's, like, full of um, gray area and that people can disagree about, a case that really could be pulled from Twitter. I mean, I don't necessarily – I think you did a great original job with the details, but it felt very – possible to me. Right. Right. And then it's like a different vantage point from thinking about the murder of Thalia Keith and this inappropriate relationship she had with this music teacher. God, I really hate the word inappropriate. I should have come up with something better. It's funny <laughs> how we just like it's so stiff and starchy and doesn't really say anything. This like deeply troubling relationship. Right. And, and I think that there is something very interesting here about feminist agency or really just female agency that you can have that the difference between age and power differential, the difference in the details is, is everything in a sense,
2: right? Right. Yeah. There are so many different kinds of power. And I think we, um, of course the problem is it's, it's all a huge gray area. That's one of the reasons that we don't examine all of those when we talk about, um, predatory relationships or imbalanced relationships, but there are differentials of things like money. there's the you know differentials of success, differentials of advancement within a certain career. Um, there are differences with um, certainly gender, certainly age but also intelligence, also experience, also attractiveness to be frank, right um, that can can really a- affect. Um, And and it's not clear. It's not, it's not as if both parties in a relationship experience that power balance the same way. Um, So often people in a relationship, both people feel the other one is the person with all the power. And, uh, you know, the way that as as Thalia, I'm sorry, as as Bodhi rather looks back on what she knows about this relationship between this 30 something music teacher and this, this senior in high school she imagines that he, the music teacher, probably didn't feel like he was the one with all the power. He probably felt like, I'm putting this, you know, I'm I'm staking everything for you. You're the one in in control. Um, and, And she goes through different versions of that, including wondering actually if he, you know, if he actually took her life, wondering if something else happened. But, you know, the way that we can see a relationship from the outside based just on say demographic details is one thing and the way it looks to people on the inside is quite another and of course there are you know there is a black and white component to this where someone underage who is a student and someone who's an adult who is an instructor that is absolutely inappropriate in, in just about everyone's book, including mine. Um, but there's, there's even so, there's just still more to think about. There's more to examine. And when we really try to get in the heads of the people involved in something like that, um, there are more questions than just, how dare you? That, that is a huge question. But um, my job as, as the author is not just to pass judgment. And in fact, maybe it's not to pass judgment at all. I can do that as a person, but as an author, my job is to get in people's heads.
1: Well, and that's the beauty of fiction, too, right? You can have all the questions you raise swirling, and you don't have to resolve any of them, and you can have shifting sympathies, (laughs) and there's no... Totally. Right? There's no, like, didactic conclusion. Um, I wanted to talk about one other aspect of Bodhi's character. So she's, uh, in a lot of ways, had, like, a really difficult upbringing um, and that is something you lay out pretty early in the book. And then we watch her remember herself as struggling in high school, but she's also like a pretty fierce person who has come through that and has a lot of strength. The book has her be a mom, but her kids remain entirely off stage through the whole book. We never meet them. And that was such an interesting choice you made. Why don't we ever see her actually dealing with her her lovely children
2: right the only time we see the kids is like over facetime very briefly Um, basically there are two main sections to the book and in both of them she's on the road Um, she's someone who lives in la but in both sections she's in new hampshire and um god you know i just i do have um a big chip on my shoulder this isn't the whole reason but you know the ways that um someone's in the news, uh, someone, let's say, so someone goes missing, and they won't stop talking about them as a mom, you know, the blah, 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 the 32-year-old mom, blah, 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 the mother of three, um, when that does not happen for men. <laughs> um, and I also, you know, anyone who travels for work um, gets, any woman who, with ch- children who travels for work gets this question that Bodhi gets throughout the book, um, of people kind of almost wide-eyed going who's watching your kids and, um, and and to be clear honestly I get that question mostly from other women mostly from from m- women a generation or two up and I understand that part of the subtext is wow I would not have been able to travel the way you're traveling um, so I don't I don't take offense at it but you know if you're on a book tour and you hear it three times a night for two weeks you start to feel really guilty when there's nothing to feel really guilty about but um, so I, I kind of defiantly just really wanted to write a, about someone who, yes, has children, and that is absolutely not the point of the book. Um, and um, not, you know, part of her identity, but absolutely not the, def, you know, the a defining um, part of her identity. There's also, I think, to be clear, you know, a, a little bit of because she is narrating this whole thing to Mr. Black, to this rather predatory teacher, A little bit of her wanting to keep her kids out of the story of not wanting to tell him about her kids that um, that felt right to me that that as she starts to realize more and more um, how predatory he was, that the last thing she would be doing is telling him about her son and daughter.
1: That's a really good point. I feel like they're on her mind in a way that doesn't come up frequently in the book, but it comes up in moments that felt very resonant to me that your kids don't have to be with you physically for them to be intertwined into your thinking and your emotions when you're on the road. I want to close by asking you two questions that are sort of lifting off from the book. I found myself dying to know what you think about both of them. So You are someone who has a wry, funny Twitter presence, and obviously you're aware of the downsides of Twitter since, um, you know, your cancel culture episode in the book really uh, incisively gets at some of them. So up or down? Are we better off in the world (laughs) if Elon Musk destroys Twitter or do you feel like it's doing more good than harm?
2: You know, I, yeah, God, I, I wish he would just, uh, give Twitter to someone better capable, but, um, I, I'm S I still use it. I, I kind of can't quit it at the moment. I'm trying to do more and more like, you know, remembering to use Instagram. I'm doing my Substack, all those things just to, what if it does explode and then how do I stay in touch with everybody? But, um, you know, I you think about I think about the people it's connected me to. I think about the communities built there, and then even you know political movements for better or worse. But um, the ways that people have been able to organize direct action, the ways that people in countries that really limit um, the way people talk politically have been able to connect to each other, um, including uh, you know literal revolutions um, that have been organized over Twitter. I, um, I mean, it, it, Twitter itself as a company, as a as the platform itself. Who knows how long it is for this world? Um, but that model of the town square, and and we're all going to talk to each other all the time. I think that is here. Such an interesting moment. You know, to us, it feels like, oh, the internet came along. And then ages and ages later, social media came along. And then ages later, Twitter was here. And you know, you know, in 100 years, people are going to look back on this as all one big moment, all of these things as as pieces of one giant puzzle. And um, uh, it's, it's an interesting, you know, like, it's always an interesting time to be alive, but that, but that is one of the th- things that makes this time to be alive so interesting. Um, and it's a reason that I was so willing to write about it. If Twitter vanishes in a year, then my book might seem a little dated, that's fine. Um, it is It is of the moment, it's here. Um, it is beca- It has become so much a part of the news cycle of the way we think, of the way we react to things. We need a lot of fine tuning. Um, and I think a lot of it is happening as we, we start to maybe keep our reactions in check a little bit more in certain situations. Um, I, I do see people being a little bit more thoughtful in, uh, some people to be clear, some people being a little bit more thoughtful before they jump to conclusions and and really attack someone online, which is, which is good. And we'll see where we are, you know, in 10 years with that. But, um, this definitely, you know, I was definitely writing this book from 2018 until, you know, the final edits were in um, this last year. And that's a time when so much was going down on social media, especially with uh, in regards to all that that Me Too stuff that that was really earth shattering for so many.
1: I think you're right that the book in some ways feels ripped from the headlines, but it also has more enduring things to say. And in some ways, it reminded me in both of those senses of um, Donna Tartt's A Secret History. Um, And because it's such an evocation of a small group of intensely bonded uh, young people. I mean, A Secret History
2: is, of course, about college and you're writing about boarding school. Thank you for saying that. Everyone remembers it as being about boarding school. I've had so many people say, oh, you're writing a boarding school novel. I loved The Secret History. That's my favorite boarding school novel. And I want to throttle them. It's a a beautiful college novel. um, And the things these people do, you know, they're, they're drinking, they're having fancy picnics with, Expensive bottles of wine. It's it's not about boarding school. Oh my God, so Thank you for knowing like that. They drink like
1: fish through that they book. They It's do. crazy how much they. they drink in that book. But I think you should go with the comparison because that book
2: is great. And oh, I like, will take the comparison right? happily, happily. Yes, yes, <laughs> I, I love that book. Absolutely. Um,
1: so my last question for you, and I should preface this by saying that um, I think from reading your afterward that you kind of grew up on a boarding school campus, and you or you went not to boarding school quite okay. Yeah.
2: So. So, um, I was a day student at a boarding at a school that was mostly a boarding school. Um, I was, God, I was a year young for my class. So I was very awkward. I was a financial aid kid at a pretty wealthy school. I got a great education. I loved it. Um, but I was, you know, in very different ways than Bodhi. I was, I was a little bit out of my element. So my husband is a high school English teacher and he teaches. This this is where it gets really weird. I met him on the East Coast. I dragged him back to Chicago. He got the job at the boarding school that I attended. So for the past like 20 years, we have lived on the campus of the high school I attended, and I have raised my kids here. So I did not grow up on a boarding school campus, except, you know, came of age in high school but um uh, my kids have are the ones who um you know my daughter learned to walk on the tennis court um they you know they grew up uh running around the cafeteria uh babysitters from all over the world watching women's sports outside their window uh, so it's been just this incredible place to raise kids but um you know at at times a strange experience to walk around um the place that I went to high school I don't think it's that unusual you know plenty of people maybe grew up in a small town and the high school they went to is still right there and they run into the people they went to high school with all the time so it's not it's not that unusual um but uh it it definitely has always been playing in my imagination as um something that fascinates me about the passage of time about returning to a place that you knew in one capacity and then seeing it through adult eyes. So, uh, this, this school is not based, you know, I I tried to make it as opposite from the school as possible, you know, make it a ski school where Chicago, This, this is not a ski school, tried to do absolutely everything different that I could. Um, and it, it is so. It's not this school, and it's not. It's certainly not my adolescence. But simply the idea of that kind of palimpsest of of layers written on top of each other in a certain place, especially a place where you came of age. That um, that was something that this this place has given me.
1: Rebecca, thank you so much for talking about your really fun, interesting, intellectually meaty new novel. I have some questions for you. It's really fun that I got to have some questions for you um, yeah. to steal your title. Thanks so much for joining us, and congratulations.
2: Thank you. This was really fun.
1: That is it for this month's edition of GabFest Reads. Our producer is Shayna Roth. Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations of Podcasts, and Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio at Slate. We will be back next month with another edition of GabFest Reads. Until then, all three of us, John and David and me, will be back in your feed on Thursday with a new episode of the Slate
2: Political Gabfest. Fest. With the Lucky Lands Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.